and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson, and today I'm going to be speaking with Sam Block, the author of the Digital Ambler blog. He's a brilliant magician, a cheap wine guzzler, and a general jerk. We talk about geomancy, the Greek magical papyri, the pick tricks, ceremonial magic, all that typical myochemical bromance stuff. And I want to remind you guys that we are now entirely listener-supported. For just a dollar a month, you get early access to episodes, you get some bonus episode material, uh, heck, some bonus episodes, and bonus content. And this is all done through the Arnomancy Patreon campaign, which you can find online at patreon.com slash Arnomancy. Um, there will be a link in the show notes. You can go click on that. Please do. Your support means a lot to us. Okay, on to the episode. Now, I just want you to know that I recorded this during the day, and there was some construction going on. There's a lot of construction in my neighborhood right now, and there are some construction noises that I wasn't able to edit out. Hopefully, they don't get in the way of your enjoyment. Thanks for listening. So, Sam Block. Yes, it is me. My first question for you, my first introductory question is, what is mathesis? Mathesis? Mathesis. 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 Um, so, a couple of years ago, I got really tired with Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a conversation between me and some of my colleagues. Um, we realized that, you know, in so much of the Western mystery tradition, the hermetic, you know, magical traditions we have. You know, Kabbalah forms this Prochristian bed almost. You know, everything that works must be related to Kabbalah. Everything has to be corresponded to the Sephirah and the paths and the Hebrew letters. And it's boring. Like we know for a fact that hermetic magic does not have to rely on Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to rely on hermetic Kabbalah with a Q or Christian Kabbalah with a C or Jewish Kabbalah with a K, however you want to spell it. So, you know, as everyone knows, Kabbalah comes from, you know, Jewish mystical traditions, you know, Merkava traditions and just outright Neoplatonic influences during the Babylonian exile period and so forth. And that kind of got brought into Western magic wholesale and you know, really picked up in the Renaissance once all the Jews got exiled from both the East, you know, Greece and West from Spain, and all their Christians were brought along. And then got picked up by the Golden Dawn, who did their own thing with it, and got picked up by Crowley and Thelema, who did his own thing with it. Mm-hmm. And nowadays we have Kabbalah, which is this giant monolithic beast, you know, in magic. And I wanted something different. I wanted a different way to view the cosmos. I wanted a different way to interact with the different planes of existence. And to that end, I started working on a Greek Kabbalah. Um, And that kind of went in its own unique direction. And in the course of trying to figure out why I wanted to call it, I didn't want to call it a Greek Kabbalah. I didn't want to call it, you know, some kind of weird hermetic mashup of Jewish and Greek stuff. I wanted to call it something that kind of meant the same thing Hmm. kabbalah means tradition you know that which is handed down from one generation to the next in that sense 
I settled upon the word mathesis, which means teaching, you know, something to be taught or studied. Like mathematics, you know, that is a kind of mathesis. Anything you study can be considered a kind of mathesis. So I started calling my kind of innovative, invented, neoplatonic, kind of neopythagorean system of theurgy and way of mapping up the cosmos as a whole, mathesis. That's actually a pretty cool answer. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I know what you are saying about Kabbalah. It is exhaustingly omnipresent. Uh, I feel like every time I get sick of it, decide that I'm going to stop studying and I get like dragged right back in. Like somebody be like, exactly. I want to know more, more about Kabbalah. I'll be like, uh, all right, hold on. <laughs> um, but it, so, uh, you know, uh, excitingly, though, there is a lot of new stuff happening in Kabbalah right now. Um, or uh, maybe not a lot. It's all old stuff. But uh, this great book just came out by um, one of the people in uh, Dolores Ashcroft Novisky's group called Kabbalistic Magic. And it's pretty good. Now, you can tell there's a lot of Golden Dawn stuff in it still, but um, but he goes to a lot of source materials and sort of pulls out like a lot of like... Uh, Balshem practices and amulet rituals and uh, there's some neat stuff in there but it's it's still just kind of like you know throwing a new blanket on a on a tired blanket holder that that, that <laughs> metaphor escaped me <laughs> I, yeah. I haven't had a chance to, get, to even hear about the book yet so i'll definitely give it a check out when i can yeah, I came across it by accident. Somebody, um, a friend of mine who's just like super brand new to Kabbalah and stuff, he, I don't know even how he found it. He just brought it one day. He's like, have you seen this book? And I opened it up. I was like, holy shit, this is going to make Kabbalah cool again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So what did you, did you bring yourself some wine to drink? Uh, actually, no, um, because I'm still technically, uh, working from home today yeah. um I you know it's still it's still so bright outside um i could absolutely you know take a quick break and you know get some wine but um maybe we should do, well, well i'll ask you for a few more questions i just have this really exciting <laughs> beer that i Ooh. that i want to taste it's a uh, vine country saison from hopworks and um Ooh. i've had it on tap a couple times and it's pretty delicious and so i thought you know Everybody would want to hear me drink it, probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, okay. So, all right. So, Mathesis. So that's interesting. So that sort of ties into a lot of your other work. So, um, on the Digital Ambler, uh, sort of the two main topics that you that you write about are the uh, Greek magical papyri and um, geomancy. And a couple of things besides, but yeah, those do seem to be the two things I keep returning to over and over. Again. Yeah, I, I feel like they are your main. Well, okay, but it maybe over, over the last couple months, it seems. Um, and now geomancy, like, so so that's uh, that's mostly a medieval tradition, right? How far back does geomancy go? Geomancy, the best historical evidence we have mm -hmm. uh, indicates that geomancy was developed in North Africa, you know, in the Sahara Desert, around 1000 uh, Common Era, and mm -hmm. was brought into Europe around 1200. Uh, in the west from Morocco into Spain and in the east from Palestine into Greece. And from those two points, it kind of spread throughout Europe like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And it, at its heyday, you know, in its highest point, it was more popular then throughout Europe than tarot or Ouija boards are nowadays for us. 
Really? Um, it was second. It was second only to astrology, as far as the divinatory arts were concerned. So, so if if geomancy were that popular today, Milton Bradley would probably have a geomancy a home geomancy set. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that would be exciting. Um, that's cool. I guess uh, I guess I didn't know exactly how far back it went. Um, mostly, I'm familiar with the stuff that Agrippa wrote about it. And Mm -hmm. um, I actually learned geomancy from John Michael Greer, who was my neighbor for a few years. No way. Yeah. um, And he really like, he taught it to me. He's like, I think I still have probably the, the, the yellow legal pad that we did it on. We had a yellow, yellow legal pad and a ballpoint pen. And he's like, ask me a question. And then he's like, that's wonderful. God, that was a treasure. Yeah. Um, but uh, I haven't used it a whole lot since then. I, I came across some of my geomantic charts recently um, because I think at the time, I don't remember exactly. I was kind of working through like a Golden Dawn self-initiation thing. And um, and John Michael was giving me tips. He'd be like, oh, if you're in this grade, you should learn how to do earth divination and you should learn how to you know do this and this i was like all right um but yeah i I kind of like it's so i guess one of the things that really stopped me from pursuing it further was the fact that geomancy seemed to rely so heavily on like astrological house systems and sort of but i just didn't have it memorized and it was a lot of work and i had like tarot already and um uh, so i was lazy i'm i'm a very lazy magician um which, work smarter not harder exactly exactly <laughs> uh but i but you know so it has been it has been catching my interest a little bit more lately do you have places where people can go like what's the best starting place for for somebody who wants to learn geomancy besides my own blog which of course i will shamelessly hawk to all interested readers of geomancy <laughs> um i'll put some links in the show notes um <laughs> <laughs> uh, john michael's most recent book on geomancy I say most recent loosely, um, art and practice of geomancy. Oh, uh, it's like this. I don't have that one. Like the, it's like a red, yellow kind of cover. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written three books on geomancy, two of which, at least one of which is already out of print. The second one might still be sold by Renaissance Astrology, you know, mm-hmm. Chris Warnock. But art and practice of geomancy was released, I think, two thousand eleven ish, okay. two thousand eight. I don't know. It's been a while. That's kind of the de facto modern textbook in English to learn geomancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm writing my own book. Uh, it's been in the work since 2013. Um, but now it's actually my own editing stage. Uh, and it's turning out to be a beast of a book on its own. But that's still editing. Mm-hmm. Um, for online resources, there is my blog. Uh, there are a few other blogs, like Dr. Alexander Cummins. Mm-hmm. He talks about geomancy as well. Um, he teaches a couple of geomancy courses over with Wolf and Goat. Uh, every once in a while there is the geomantic study group on facebook that i admin Mm -hmm. uh where it's i think getting close like 900 some members at this point uh just people who practice geomancy we share charts we offer you know advice on how to read you know critiquing each other's you know methods and whatnot in a constructive way um there's also the yahoo group geomantic campus which Mm -hmm. has been on for considerably longer (laughs) <laughs> um uh i don't know how active is anymore though i haven't checked in there in a while but those are some resources to check out for those who are interested okay i'll i'll uh wait geomantic campus all right cool 
I'll see if I can collect uh, links to those things and put those in the show notes too, but I'll make them in a smaller font than the digital amber. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> of course. I'm clearly my blog is the best blog. Well, your blog is really full. Like you're a really prolific blogger. Like I, you know, I blog about uh, occult stuff, but uh, I mean, I feel lucky if I could do like one article a month, <laughs> but you've got stuff coming out all the time. And and the amazing thing is, like, I get into it, I'm like, oh, this is an interesting topic. And then I'm like, holy crap, there's five pages of this. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do it? Is it methamphetamines or um, or do you just have a lot to say? <laughs> I, so my husband, my husband and I, you were both spiritual magical people, but uh-huh. we do completely different styles of magic. He fucking hates my kind of magic because it's so wordy. Because <laughs> I, in general, am so wordy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my husband does not like the kind of wordy magic that I do. Um, so I do think a lot. Um, and I happen to have probably more free time at work than I should. Um, so I just use it arguably in a productive, constructive manner and just keep writing about things that I may or may not have the license to write about. Who knows? Yeah. Um, if you write enough, you're going to be an expert. Clearly, it's like a, <laughs> like putting on makeup. You know, it's right. just one giant deception. It is. <laughs> um, apparently, in the past year, I actually managed to cross the one millionth word mark for my blog. Are you kidding? Over the, over the eight <laughs> years it's been online, I have written like getting close to seven hundred articles over a million words at this point. I don't even know how I've done it. That's uh, that's not only impressive; it's kind of almost unbelievable. But, but well done! Like congratulations, crossing a million words of blogging. Like I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever been able to keep a blog um, alive for eight years. Although I don't even know how I've done. Like this has been honestly the longest running project I've ever done. Yeah, like that's... longer than college, longer than mm. my own career. So, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's cool. All right, and then all right. So, so basically, you're just very wordy. You're like wordy Sam. That's Evidently, a horrible nickname. We won't use that one again. Um, you wouldn't be the first. Trust me. <laughs> so then, when you uh, so the PGM stuff, like when did you start getting into the PGM? What is the PGM? Let's start. Let's ah. start it for like start with like 101, and then we'll jump to 501. All right, elevator okay. speech of the PGM. Yeah, PGM stands for Papyri Gregi Magicae, or in Latin, the Greek magical papyri. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is effectively the Dead Sea Scrolls of Western Hermetic magic. I use Western Hermetic as kind of synonyms for each other in this mm-hmm. case. You know, it's a collection of texts from roughly 100 BC to 580 uh, found in ancient Egypt. That's a collection of multiple magicians mm-hmm. not just a single magician but multiple practicing mages you know writing down their rituals their notes their ingredient lists their ceremonies their prayers and it's kind of their own personal grimoires that mm-hmm. we somehow managed to find through the dust and waste of time and that is a wonderful resource for us nowadays that's an excellent answer did you prepare that you just had that. 
You just had that ready. Okay, that was cool. Uh, <laughs> okay, so in the PGM, it's uh, but it's not. It's also not all Greek, right? So it's there's probably Correct. like uh, there's Koina and uh, demotic. There's demotic in there. Yes. Um, so we call it the Greek papyri because it is largely written in Koina Greek. Mm-hmm. You know, the common you know everyday Greek that was spoken in the Mediterranean. You know, around the early Roman Empire period. However, there are some sections in it that were written in. Demotic, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of Egyptian language, proto-Coptic, if you will. Um, and it's, but again, it's mostly in Greek. If you look at the Betts version of the translation, mm-hmm. you know, you'll actually have the Greek magic of Apiri with a Demotic Piri. You know, like a, mm-hmm. like a little subtitle, like <laughs> just, there's a couple of Demotic stuff in there. And some of the PGM texts actually incorporate Demotic into their rituals and prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though they were written in Greek, it's like a person in France writing an academic paper in English because yeah. you know, they're using the lingua franca of the time. Um, mm-hmm. The people who wrote the PGM were by and large native Egyptians trained in native Egyptian you know, religion and priesthood and cult who also brought in aspects of Greek cult and Greek religion and Roman cult and Roman religion and... The way I kind of conceive of it is imagine you're like, you know, the breadbasket of the ancient world, you know, Egypt. It's a major trading port for Greece, Rome, the English islands, India, all parts of Africa, all kind of just converging at this crossroads of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They, not only didn't, they didn't just bring their spices and their grain and their fabrics, they also brought their philosophies and their religions and their magics. So out of the Roman, Greek, Egyptian, Babylonian, English, Indian, you know, Ethiopian, all those peoples rubbing shoulders, out of that philosophical religious orgy popped out Hermeticism. And from those practices also popped out the PGM. So the PGM is <clears throat> all right, so Hermeticism itself, like that, uh we we mostly have evidence of that through um, the Corpus Hermeticum and the Asclepius and uh, the Nag Hammadi scriptures. Um, do you think that it's pretty? Do you think that the PGM and whoever was writing the the Hermetica? Do you think they were the same people? No. Do you think they no, knew each other? Did they like spit on each other, or did they work together? So, I know that if you look at the history of the Corpus Hermeticum, like Brian Copenhaver in his translation of, you know, Hermetica, the Corpus mm-hmm. Hermeticum, he talks about there being two sets, like two Corpi Hermetica, Hermetici. There's the philosophical Corpus Hermeticum, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what we're familiar with as the Corpus Hermeticum, mm-hmm. you know, the Poimander, the prayers, the Asclepius, Hermes talking to his son, Tot and Asclepius giving, you know, the discourse to the eighth and the ninth and all that fun stuff. And then there's the technical Hermetica, mm-hmm. which hasn't been translated as often because when we say technical Hermetica, we're actually referring to the magical stuff, mm-hmm. the actual rituals and the implements and the ingredients. And I haven't seen as many versions of the technical Hermetica that might have been written alongside what we call the Corpus Hermeticum, but it's basically what you would find in the PGM. But it's, so I don't think is the technical Hermetica out there? Like, is it available? 
I do not know. I would hope that someone could correct me and point me in the right direction. I believe it should. I believe it would. I feel like I got an impression from uh, from uh, Fowler's book, The Egyptian Hermes, that the PGM was almost considered the technical Hermetica. If that's the case, then we have it. <laughs> we have it in full <laughs> translation. <laughs> uh, it doesn't always seem to really. I mean, you know, I, I'm. I guess I'm more familiar with the with the Corpus Hermeticum than I am with the uh, with the PGM, um, but it doesn't always seem like they really match up. Like the the Corpus Hermeticum is so. I mean, you know, we you know you, you might call it philosophical, but it's it's very mystical, and it's almost it seems to almost entirely be focused on, you know, the 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 monad or the like the 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 one deity, the Agathos Daimon or whatever you call it, um, with. Almost, I mean, you you see, possibly zero mention of any other gods except for like Hermes and Asclepius, who show up as like ordinary people instead of gods. Uh, a little bit of Ammon, um, and then like some totally made up gods that happen in like the the uh, the first book, the Poimandres, where you know he's they've got the creation story. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so in my mind, when I'm when I'm reading the the PGM and I try to look for the connections, but it seem they seem so, it's hard to draw the lines. It's hard to draw connections for me. I mean, I I know that they're there. I know that you know there's long been a sort of disconnect between you know the the ideas of or the practices of like thaumaturgy and theurgy have been sort of kept separate for quite a while. Um, I mean, what do you do? You have thoughts on that? Like, do you? You're absolutely right in saying that the Corpus Hermeticum is very much not only a philosophical text, but a mystical text. It absolutely mm-hmm. is. And if there were one single author of it, I think that we could definitely call him like a hermeticist, you know, devoted to you know truly theurgic practices and what we would consider more or less a neoplatonic mm-hmm. kind of theurgical line. And there's always been, you know, a fight between theurgists and thaumaturgists. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's a fight to be had at all, they'll gladly get into it. You know, no, you're using magic for evil ends. You know, we shouldn't be want, you know, dealing with, you know, money and getting laid. And then there's the thaumaturgists like, oh, why? Of course I'm <laughs> going to. It's there for the taking. Why not? I can still do the theurgy, <laughs> but I also want to get laid. Right. So, <laughs> now, so recently Gordon White of Rune Soup, you know, a couple quarters ago, two quarters ago, um, he put up his own class on the PGM. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sat in on that. I, you know, listened to his lectures. I found them fascinating. And his perspective on the PGM is that, A, it's not written by a single person. And that's absolutely true. You cannot mm-hmm. treat the PGM as a single book written by a single author. It is a collection of books and notes and texts taken from multiple magicians over multiple centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, these texts were written by a priestly class in Egypt. Like they were written by actual, you know, vagrant priests who were employed in the temples only for part of the year. And in their off period, were working as you know vagrant itinerant priests magicians you know working one-on-one with the people to keep food in their belly mm-hmm. and unlike nowadays where we think of religion as being one thing that you are like you are a christian or you are a muslim or you are a jew you know back then 
there was nowhere near as much exclusivity when it came to religions. You know, mm-hmm. you could be a part of the ISIS cult and the Serapis cult and part of the Eleusinian mysteries and part of the Mithraic mysteries and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Which we saw in like Greek philosophers who were like, oh yeah, I went to went to Egypt, got initiated, came back here, got initiated again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like you can get multiple initiations. And this is what you see time and time again in many of these old world, you know, very traditional kind of, you know, religious environments. Mm-hmm. Um these aren't exclusive things. They all have their own individual purposes, their own functions, their own eschatologies, their own cosmologies. And a person could absolutely delve into many of these and come up with their own unique synthesis, their own unique synchronization of these individual things. And it is likely that some of these you know, itinerant mage priests who wrote what we have as the PGM also incorporated aspects of Greek philosophy and religion and theology into their own personal works. And out of that could have come something that either strongly resembled hermeticism or took hermeticism along a different route, mm-hmm. or maybe could have been one of the authors of the Corpus Hermeticum. Yeah, even the Corpus Hermeticum itself, like that's uh, that's multiple texts from multiple authors. Uh, I don't exactly. know if I don't know that the the time span isn't as great. So they might have been operating over a shorter period of time. You know, like the uh, the PGM you said were, were like from five hundred BCE to like three hundred CE or something like that. One hundred to five hundred or so, yeah. Yeah, uh, and the Corpus Hermeticum are, I guess, a little later, but also over a shorter period of time. But if you read, um, I can't remember if it's Copenhaver or Salomon's commentary on it, he talks about how the Corpus Hermeticum doesn't even really present a uh, one holistic view. You know, so it's exactly, mystical, yeah. but it doesn't always agree with itself very well. So mm-hmm. you've got you've got both dualist and monist uh, persistence perspectives in there you've got uh yeah i but which i think is really fascinating oh and then like the asclepius itself with its bizarre fortune telling or its bizarre prophecies about the future of egypt and the oh yeah the magic statues and the i love the asclepius that's, that thing is crazy okay you know what i'm gonna open my beer you should maybe go get yourself a glass of wine so we i'll can... be right back there. Right, i'm I'll sure it's gonna be edited out a bit okay <laughs> So, of course, me being lazy, I just pulled this bottle out of the fridge because I have no class whatsoever. And, of course, it's just a large one and a half liter of cheap red sweet wine. Is that Barefoot Merlot? It is. No, it's Barefoot Sweet Red Blend. Sweet Red Blend. Oh, my God. <laughs> Salute. <laughs> How's it taste? Tell us about it. <laughs> um, I mean, those who know me, you know, as a friend... From my party days, from my furry days, like they Wait, know that. Did you say furry? They days? know. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I'm part of. Well, you man, it just took one days. sip of wine to get that out of you. It's like I was known for like bringing gallons of cheap Yago brand Sant Gria. Um, literal, like, a giant gallon was like ten bucks. Mm. Um, one time, so okay, so one time I brought a gallon of the sangria at a friend's house, drank part of it, and I left it there. I went back to visit them like several months later, and that gallon was still there untouched. Yeah. Unrefrigerated, out in the open. And so me being curious and very bold, I decided to open up and see what it tastes like after multiple months of being set out. Oh, no. <laughs> it had been out for so long, and it was so sugary 
that it was fizzy from having re-fermented. Well, it was probably stronger. <laughs> it was. It was a great time. <laughs> All right. I'm going to open my ridiculously fancy beer now. Tell us about your beer. Tell us what kind of beer it is. All right. So this color is, and smell. This is a... This is an interesting beer. It's a Saison, which um, is uh, basically a French farmhouse style ale. So it, they tend to be kind of like uh, more rougher fermented, kind of a little funky, a little a, a little bit of uh, acidity or sourness to them. Um, and usually some really good kind of like malt flavors. So maybe a tiny bit sweet, but also I like I, I usually like to describe sort of the base flavor of a Saison as funk. Um and it's aged in Pinot Noir barrels, which is going to give it a weird wine flavor too. Uh, and I don't remember what color it is, but we're about to we're about to find out. It's the same color as beer. Um, beer colored beer. That's reassuring <laughs> to know. Uh, it's really kind of a deep amber. It's a it's a pretty color. I would say if it's it's kind of the same color as a pale ale. I wouldn't guess what beer this was just by looking at it. But I would by smelling it, because it smells like somebody put wine in my Saison. <laughs> it smells amazing. <laughs> well, cheers, Ooh. Sam. Cheers. Coincidentally, this bottle of wine was actually used for <laughs> offerings earlier this week, so perfect for the show. Hey, well, let's talk about offerings a little bit. Um, you know what? This is This is actually kind of an interesting thing, because I suspect that since you have... I don't know how to say it politely. Somewhat plebeian taste in wine. <laughs> oh, no, that's absolutely fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, when you're uh, preparing offerings for for a rite, for a ritual, um, how do you go about it? So do you do you uh, pick wine based on or, or or the libation based on whatever deity or day of the week or whatever that you're you're working with? Not really. I mean, I can definitely see the logic in doing so. And if I really want to go all out, I mm -hmm. would absolutely pick like a nice, good kind of wine. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily vintage, not necessarily, you know, something too rich or too expensive. You know, you always want to have something to give. Mm -hmm. You don't want to spend all your money on offerings for one offering because you won't have anything the next time to offer. You don't want to spoil true. the gods or the spirits, you know. <laughs> so, and you know, back in ancient Greece, you know, ancient Egypt, ancient Mediterranean times, you know, wine wasn't as regulated as it is now. Mm -hmm. Like you buy a bottle of wine now, you're going to have wine. You know, mm -hmm. it's going to be all about the same strength. It's going to be all about the same kind of weight or density mm -hmm. you know, there'll be different variations you know where you get it how it was made specific lineages of wine will all definitely change but back in ancient times wine was a lot more variable yeah so like at symposiums or you know drinking parties you would have a water master who would actually be mixing unmixed wine with water to standardize it for the party purposes mm -hmm. if you want the party to you know turn up and get lit he would add only a little bit of water if you want everyone to have like a nice mild time he had a lot of water but you would never drink unmixed wine like that was for barbarians it would make you go crazy you never drink unmixed wine yeah it and which for us doesn't seem to make sense because what is unmixed wine you know imagine this just a normal bottle of wine but three to four times as strong mm -hmm. like actual natural fermentation 
going in its own way at its own pace will yield you a very strong line. It might. But a lot of times, a lot of yeasts uh, kind of die at around 15%, which is a little stronger than your average bottle of wine, but not a whole lot. However, you're going to get a lot of other stuff going on. So like, uh, so like old wine would be using whatever yeast was on the skin and whatever yeast was in the air. So there would be a, a kind of a weird bacterial party going on in your wine, but you would probably mm-hmm. end up with something sweet like what you're drinking now. It would probably be sweeter than what we're used to. Um, and for offerings for the Greek gods, you would actually even make it even sweeter. Like, mm. it's almost always the case that you would add in honey into your wine. Oh. Like, you often find honey sweet wine, you know, described in Texas for offerings. And I think as part of modern Hellenistic practice, mm-hmm. you actually offer wine mixed with honey, like to Hestia or to Zeus or the other gods. Yeah, I know. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, for me, I guess uh, having so much Renaissance magic mixed into my practice, I like to have the libations kind of match the rest of the stuff that I'm working with. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm working with green, with Venus, I'll serve, I'll use something green or, or whatever. Um, and I also, I, I haven't yet succeeded in doing this cause I, I'm not like the best baker in the world, but last year I was doing a Mars working and I was uh, for, on Halloween because Mars was in uh, Capricorn last Halloween. Right. So I was like, this is going to be great. And I decided I found this recipe that apparently was for, tr- for uh, soul cakes, which used to be given out as treats on Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to make this. I'm going to put like cinnamon and red stuff in it. So it'll be, there'll be Mars soul cakes. Tell me you didn't put in fireball. Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't put in fireball. I put in like actual like cinnamon powder. Like, you know, the. Oh. Yeah. Uh, but what I ended up making were little Mars hockey pucks. They were nearly, Ooh. nearly inedible. I I, oh. <laughs> I used them for the ritual. And then afterwards, I had like a whole bunch of left over and I kept trying to snack on them. I like, these are awful. So, eh. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but I enjoy, you know, I really enjoy that process in. Um, you know, in doing ritual magic or doing any sort of ritual is like, there's so much, there's like an endless amount of, of doing, of, you know, roll on your own that you can do. So you can, you can bake the libations. Heck, you could brew your own beer. You can, you know, I mean, most people end up making tons of their ritual implements and tools and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that part of it. I think that's really fun. And that's a great way to go about doing it. You know, the mm-hmm. more resonance with the thing you're offering to a thing you're invoking, the more resonance you have, mm-hmm. the more power you're building up. Even just like the color of underwear you pick or how nice <laughs> underwear makes you feel. You know, it doesn't have to just be about altar cloths and, you know, type of incense or color and number of candles. It's literally the music you will listen to earlier in that day. It could be exactly what color the wine or beer or whiskey you're offering is. Mm -hmm. It could be the difference of smoking a menthol or smoking a clove or smoking an outright cigar. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a cigar, well, there's all the other tastes and notes and flavors you can get. It's, it has notes of chocolate or notes of pepper or notes of iron. You know, tobacco is tobacco, but you can still vary up so much. Mm-hmm. And every little detail you can, you know, twist and pull and nudge in the right direction will make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. When you, um, when you're looking at a ritual for the PGM, like how, uh, all right, let's let's back up a little bit. So you decide you want to do a ritual, sure. and you're like, I'm going to use the PGM for this. Now, do you have a purpose for the ritual first, or do you go into the PGM, find something, and be like, that looks fun, I'm going to try that? 
I always have a purpose first. Okay. Um, there's, there is definitely a time and place for experimentation. Mm-hmm. But for me, necessity is mother of invention. Mm-hmm. So, sorry about that. That's right. You're popular. No, it's just robocallers. Like, oh, do not hang up. Do you have back pain? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I think I damn phone. Um, I'm sure this way I can do it. You know what? I'm just going to just throw the phone by the door. It's fine. Um, <laughs> hopefully that won't bite me in the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, for me, I always have a purpose going to ritual first. You know, I don't like calling gods for the sake of calling gods. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like to be bothered. Why would they? Um, of course, I do. You know, absolutely revere them. I worship them. I honor them. I make offerings to them. You know, whether they're the Greek gods or you know a variety of planetary deities or Orisha or you know any number of spirits. You know, I'll absolutely you know give them their time that they're due. Mm-hmm. Probably not as much as I should, uh, but I'll give them the time that's due to them. But when I have a actual work to be done that's when the show is on Mm -hmm. as for how that's done that's when i'm like do i feel like pgm do i feel like picatrix do i feel like renaissance blah 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 and so forth (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and then so you go through the pgm you find something that looks suitable for what you're working and then um you know, there's so much stuff in the PGM that you just like can't even get your hands on nowadays. Like you're not going to find, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the one that's been frustrating me is there's a ritual in the PGM. I think it's book one. It's very early. And there's the recipe for myrrh ink. Oh, yeah. Which includes stuff like the wings of of uh, Hermaic ibises. Yeah, which uh, I have no idea how to get a hold of those. I don't even know if those aren't those things extinct. <laughs> um, um, and ibises in general aren't, but yeah, they might be endangered or have legal protections put upon them. And so way either way, difficult to paint. Or then uh, you know the the picatrix is another good example of that, where you've got uh-huh. like those recipes for temple incense that are like you know you know collect the the fat of thirteen bulls and mix it with. And it's just like, I'm going to end up with 30 pounds of incense if I do this. <laughs> um, it's going to smell terrible because it's, it's probably going to go bad by the time you can mix it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm just wondering, like, what's your what's your normal process for adapting a PGM ritual to the modern world? Ah, geez. So when it comes to you know, using an ingredient list or mm-hmm. using a recipe from a text this old, like, you have to bear in mind that it was written in a totally different part of the world with mm-hmm. a different climate, different restrictions and abilities to obtain stuff. And sometimes they used it for its chemical properties. Mm-hmm. Sometimes used it for its spiritual properties. Sometimes used it for its symbolic properties that were not necessarily spiritual, but had no other purpose to be in there besides symbolism. Um, for instance, not too long ago, uh, I wrote a post about incense mm-hmm. uh, from the PGM. I believe it was PGM 13. Yes. And it's basically a kind of PGM style kiffy. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a bunch of ingredients, some of which are really hard to translate. And sometimes you just can't get these things. Mm-hmm. In that case, do your best. Like, if you can find something that's 
smells appropriate enough and is used for more or less the same thing, mm-hmm. you can use as a substitute. For me, smells important. Whether it's in an oil, whether it's in an incense, smells important. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get that, again, see how far you can kind of substitute things in while still having more or less the same idea. And if you can't even get any kind of substitute whatsoever, the fallback is take some salt or some flour or some really just inert bland stuff and just say, you are flour. You are not flour, but you are malabathrin. <laughs> or you are not flour, you are costasweed. You know, call it what it needs to be. Got it. So, oh, that's an interesting approach. What about, oh, <clears throat> I mean, if you're using incense, you don't want to burn flour. That's not going to smell good. I mean, it'll make things smoky. Yeah. What about for sure. uh, gum Arabic, though, as a, as a sort of a bland... It's a binder, and yeah. it's pretty inert on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to add too much of it, though, because it'll just it just becomes runny. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, you you like I would already be using gum arabic anyway, mm-hmm. um, but pretty much just as a binder. So I'd probably still add something that's just again more or less inert or mm-hmm. just neutral. That makes sense. What about, uh, you know, using more modern ingredients? You know, for instance, in uh, 777, Crowley associates uh, tobacco with uh, Gevora or Mar- and Mars stuff. Um, and that's a New World uh, herb, mm-hmm. so the, the Greeks, the Egyptians wouldn't have even known about it. Uh, yeah, that's, again, just substitution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, for me, there's three ranks of substitution. You know, ideally, you'd have the thing itself. Mm-hmm. If you can't get that, get things that were available more or less in the same context and more or less similar. Mm-hmm. If you can't get that, get something that's more or less similar but would not have been available in that context. Okay. So, like, for instance, if you need a specific kind of cinnamon and you can't get that specific kind of cinnamon, substitute with a similar kind of cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, in this PGM Kiffy from the PGM 13. It calls for a malabathrin, which is an old name for Indian bay leaf. Oh. It's kind of a cinnamon, though. It's mm-hmm. still in the cinnamon family, Canemonium tamala. So if you can't get malabathrin, get another kind of eastern cinnamon, like Saigon cinnamon. Mm-hmm. If you can't get Saigon cinnamon, you know you can either use bay leaf, mm-hmm. or you could use curry leaves, or you could use cassia. And if you can't use any of those, if you for some reason can't find cassia, which even today <laughs> you can find cassia. But uh-huh. if for some reason you are absolutely in a dearth of supermarkets and you know easily accessible cheap spices, you know again flour and just quote baptize it as malabathrin. <laughs> baptize flour. Cool. I'm writing that down. Well, it's like you know kudu stuff. You know if you can't get access to your target directly mm-hmm. use a if you have know, a voodoo doll right you know take a doll you baptize in the person's name and mm-hmm. it becomes a full stand-in for that person you can do the same thing with ingredients no it's not ideal but if you do it with the right intent if you do it with the right authority you know and spiritual oomph it'll work yeah uh, all right, and then what about when it comes to adapting the ritual itself? Um, like the PGM is full of not only lacunas, but places where it's just like you know, do the usual thing, 
and it doesn't really tell you <laughs> what the heck you're supposed to do. Uh, so I noticed you made uh, you made that framework uh, ritual or the ritual framework, yes. which is very impressive and incredibly long. Uh, it's very yes. wordy. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so like I, I've made something um, similar and super super way shorter for Picatrix rituals, um, and I'm wondering like when there are those gaps what's your main process for filling them in? Do you try to stick entirely with PGM stuff or do you incorporate things from other texts and other works? Again, you know, kind of with ingredients. Um, I'll try to, if I do need to make a substitution, if I need to make an addition, Mm -hmm. I'll try to stick to stuff that's contextually appropriate. Mm -hmm. Consider, you know, the Arbitel, you know, that Renaissance, you know, book on white magic. Which Um, is almost devoid of ritual. Exactly. Yeah. And yet it describes a ritual at a very mm-hmm. high level. It describes the invocation of spirits. It describes a kind of celestial cosmology. It describes a framework at a very high level, but it doesn't have a lot in it. But we know when and where the Arbiter was written. We know it falls in the school of Paracelsus. Mm-hmm. We know the kinds of magic the students of Paracelsus engaged in. We know that the Ars Paulina is another extension of that kind of Paracelsian school of magic. So the Ars Paulina is not related directly to the Arbitel, but we know they were in the same context. Mm-hmm. So in my version of doing the Arbitel, I will use an extra prayer from the Ars Paulina for invocation of the Holy Garden Angel. Because oh. I find it's contextually appropriate to the Arbitel. They're written more or less at the same time in more or less the same area by more or less the same people. Mm-hmm. With the PGM, similarly, we know the various practices you know, that were engaged in by the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews and the early Christians and other Babylonian and Assyrian and you know, so forth petitioners. And we know you know the Leiden papyrus and you know, the Sefer Havrazim and other proto or pre- Kabbalah, Jewish magical traditions, and we have everything else in the PGM and the you know the demotic spells and the Coptic spells and so forth. So if you have a lacuna and you absolutely need something there, you can't just alight out. Then see what would fit. Mm-hmm. See what puzzle piece you can take from somewhere else that kind of more or less has the same shape. Be smart about it. It's preferred that you have already worked with the thing you you're pulling that puzzle piece from ahead of time. Ah. But you know, if you need to pull something in, it's better if you don't have to do that at all. So it's better if you have a more or less complete ritual to work with. Um, like I see people in some of the PGM groups on Facebook, you know, reference this ritual that has like all of five words from what should have been like an entire papyrus on its own. Mm-hmm. Like you can't really work with something like that. You don't know enough about it. You don't know, you know, what should be said or what should be done or in the order which should be done. You don't know if you need any special ingredients or supplies or tools. And most importantly, you don't know why it should be done. Mm-hmm. That's the most terrifying thing. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. no, keep going. No, I was wondering if you have, uh, so you've worked with the PGM for quite a while now, and I'm wondering if you have created uh, any rituals uh, just from scratch based on what you've learned out of the PGM? Like, have you just sort of come up with your own thing at all? Not that I can think of, not in that way. Like, if I were to 
have come up with, yeah, I don't think I could have, I think claim to come up with a PGM type ritual. Mm-hmm. But like, for instance, recently in my blog, I've been talking a lot about geomantic magic. Mm-hmm. Um, this is related, I swear. Um, no, Geomancy <laughs> hasn't really been used magically all that much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been used as a system of divination. You know, but like how astrology has been used for magic, you know, for electional astrology, making astrological talismans and this, that, and the other, we never saw the same thing in the history with geomancy mm-hmm. until very recently, comparatively. So I've been experimenting with doing geomantic style magic, using the figures and different connections I can make to other occult disciplines to apply a kind of magic using geomancy. And recently I came up with a system of intonations for each of the geomantic figures mm-hmm. using a system of, you know, Greek vowels. And we know for a fact that, you know, intoning the vowels was a very powerful and popular practice of the ancient world. Mm-hmm. You know, seven Greek vowels, seven planets, seven heavens. So this kind of system of intoning vowels for each of the geomantic figures could be seen as PGM-ish. You know, definitely working with forces that were not in the PGM. You know, again, mm-hmm. Gmancy came around about a thousand years ago, which is still a thousand years later than, you know, the time period of the PGM. Yeah. But still, some of the techniques from the PGM stuff can absolutely be used outside of PGM rituals. Um, most popular that I can think of is the calling the sevenths or heptagram or heptosphere ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, most people know about this through Tony Mearswicky's book or Mike Cacciatelli's book or Jason Miller's practices. Mm-hmm. But it comes from the PGM 13. And basically you face east, north, west, south, down, outwards, and up. Make a certain gesture and intone a Greek vowel. Yeah. And it, it's basically a very simple energy practice mm-hmm. for the seven planets. It's interesting. The Picatrix has that. Somewhat, I think you're talking about the, like, the different spirits for each of the planets. Yeah, but like it's how always planet like has spirit behind, spirit before, yeah. to the left and right. And there's seven of them, or actually even eight, I think. Yeah, it's like behind, before, above, below, left, right, middle, and motion. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a little bit different. Um, okay. Nick Farrell talks about this a little bit in his stuff, um, and how it refers to, like different spiritual properties of the planet. Nick Farrell's idea on that is actually brilliant. I like the idea a lot. It's not just like a physical space representation. Hmm. But like this heptosphere, heptagram ritual, is basically a prototype energy working that kind of attunes you to the seven planets. Okay. And yes, it's a very small part of a much larger ritual, but you can kind of extract that tiny little ritual on its own and incorporate it into your own daily practice. Like you might do a regular okay. banishing, a regular invocation, a regular planetary attunement would be like this got it that's interesting i'm being quiet because i'm writing a note down (laughs) how do you feel like the uh, the geomantic magic stuff is coming along slowly um very experimentally yeah um again like this is one part where i will experiment because there's really nothing out there on it Mm -hmm. like 
no one really does this besides a very small handful of people. Um, like Al Cummins does a lot of great geomantic magic stuff. But the stuff I'm coming up with is, again, different than what other people might be doing. It ties into more of my own personal pet projects. It ties into kind of some of the PGM stuff, like we mentioned. And it's very experimental. Mm-hmm. And again, for me, necessity is mother invention. Mm-hmm. And for once, I don't actually have necessity to guide me on this. So in some cases, it's just me coming up with an idea, seeing parallels that I know for a fact work, mm-hmm. and then having faith that this will also work. In other cases, it's, no, I've actually tried this out, and it works as effective as anything else. Mm-hmm. But all the same, it is still very slow. Um, you know, coming up with like an entire field of magic. Like, imagine coming up with the idea of astrological image-based talismans. How long would it take you to do that? Oh, uh, 1,200 years, probably. <laughs> and, exactly. Yeah. Like, and here I am, one person trying to, you know, catch up with, mm-hmm. you know, astrological image magic for an entire other system that's never been applied for that end yet. Are you doing stuff like talismans with it, or are you... Sometimes talismans, sometimes candle arrangements, mm-hmm. sometimes just intonation of vowels and kind of channeling pure force through that. Um, it really depends. Like I whipped out like a system of gestures for the figures mm-hmm. hand gestures based on positions of fingers and so forth and kind of throttle certain energy, um, elemental energies or elemental powers through those while intoning some vowel or other. And it works great. There's a lot of interesting math in the geomantic figures, you know, because it's a four bit binary number. Mm-hmm. Have you played with that stuff at all? Like, absolutely I, I i can imagine that would be you could use that as a basis just for the uh the hand gestures which is basically where it came from mm-hmm. um you know if you consider the four fingers of a hand not counting the thumb you know pinky is the earth line ring finger is the water line middle finger is the air line index finger is the fire line the fingers extended outwards two mm-hmm. points finger extended inwards into the palm one point so via is a fist Papus is all fingers extended. Laetitia is just the index finger put into the hand. Okay. And so forth. And I'm also a computer scientist. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a software engineer by trade. You know, went to college for computer science. And, you know, the binary mathematics, what geomancy is, what really snagged my interest. Mm-hmm. And it makes it really amenable to lots of computer programming and, you know, churning out all possible charts with certain properties. You know, yeah. really for that. Have you tried? Have you written any uh, any geomantic software to sort of explore this yes. sort of stuff a little bit? Mm-hmm. Like I actually wrote a geomantic calculation program uh-huh. uh, back in college. It's still being used. I still use it on occasion. Well, I don't just use pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's text based. It's console based. Um, it's it's sturdy and reliable. I'll give it that much. <laughs> um, but like I'll write Python scripts mm-hmm. to churn out. You know, amongst all 65,000 some charts, which charts have this specific mathematical property? Or which charts have mothers and daughters in this particular arrangement? And that takes like an hour, maybe, at most. Yeah. That's actually pretty cool. Um, I feel like through that sort of analysis, you can really come up with some interesting meta-analysis of charts or even uh, ways of charting correspondences between them. You might you might be breaking bold new ground here. I like to think that I have. Which means that we're probably going to have to turn your last name into an adjective at some point. 
Oh, geez, no. Please, no. Blockian is awful. Blockian like, geomancy? Block <laughs> I, for that, let's use my pen. Let's use polyphonies, because there's like it lends itself to the adjective polyphonic. And I like that. Polyphonic so. geomancy. All right, I, I can go with that. I'll even I'll even <laughs> use that title in the podcast. Sam, oh, please Sam don't. Block oh, God, on no. polyphonic geomancy. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen whether you like it or not. Uh, can I be dead first? Like, well, in like several decades? That depends. <laughs> yeah, that geomancy stuff, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I'll, uh, I'm going to spend some more time reading your articles and maybe I'll get out the old legal pad and ballpoint pen and do some uh, geomancy myself. <laughs> it's worth it, I claim. What do you, uh, what sort of tools do you use to, to do a geomantic reading? Do you have a the sandbox method oh no god that's no, so messy um so for me i actually either use like yes i can use the stick and surface method you're know, taking mm -hmm. a pen and paper or a stick and dirt mm -hmm. and you're making you know the lines of dots i can do that and i recommend everyone does that when they learn geomancy but for my own practice i either use a deck of cards i made uh 64 cards you know four cards per each figure Mm -hmm. You know, I shuffle that. I cut up in four, you know, smaller decks. And I just flip the top card of each deck, or I use a set of tabletop RPG dice, like mm -hmm. use for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I use the Platonic solids for each of the four elements: so okay. the D4 tetrahedron for fire, the D8 octahedron for air, D20 for water, D6 for earth. Roll the dice, see whether the number is odd or even. That's a good. That's a good method. That's four, six, eight, and twelve. Uh, fours, eight, twenty, and six. Four, eight, twenty, and six. So now I'm gonna have to go see if I can find my D and D dice. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, so that'll give you like since there's four lines, you get like earth on the bottom. Ah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All yep. right, cool. Um, cool. And then. Uh, you know the 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 random binary method, the random binariness of uh, geomancy really makes me think of I Ching also, which I know very little about. So if you have anything to say there, that's cool. But I, I won't be able to ask you any intelligent questions. Just dumb ones. So I'm not a practitioner of I Ching, but mm -hmm. I do have friends that are. I know a little bit about it. Superficially, geomancy and I Ching are very similar. They mm -hmm. both absolutely rely on binary structures, binary symbols. But while Geomancy has the geometric figures, or tetragrams, Iching has the trigrams or the hexagrams, mm -hmm. which are just two trigrams put on top of each other. You know, you have the unbroken yang line and the broken yin line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, different combinations of those, you can come up with a different trigram, of which there are eight, or different hexagram, which are there 64. And you can use different methods like flipping coins or, you know, shuffling up, you know, sticks, like little, like, yarrow straws mm -hmm. um, to come up with those trigrams and hexagrams. However, I Ching is absolutely older than Geomancy. Mm -hmm. Like Geomancy came around about 1000 common era. I Ching goes back, I think with evidence pointing back to around 2000 BCE. Yeah, I think that's right. Cause it's Confucian, so, I believe, isn't it? It's more Taoist, but it's Daoist? Okay. very traditional Chinese, very yeah. traditional Chinese. Very old. 
And you know, some people claim that there is a connection between geomancy and I Ching, that geomancy mm -hmm. came from I Ching or vice versa, or they share a common root. I don't put much stock in those theories. Mm -hmm. Superficially, they're very similar, and I prefer to leave it at that. Yeah, you'd need some pretty good documentary evidence to yeah. to bring those together. Yeah, I mean, um, I can't remember. I think it was uh, I think it was John Michael who described geomancy as like poor man's astrology. Where exactly that's exactly how it was seen too. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you think about it, like, have you ever cast an astrological chart by hand? God no, <laughs> I don't have the time for that. I have, I have. I got, I oh like, I used it ephemeris. I did all the math. I, it takes a long time, and that's not even including the interpretation, right? Like, just figuring out like where all the planets are at a specific time and date and stuff. Uh, I think I only did it once. I, but uh, <laughs> you're done. So who knows if I was even right? But really, it was ours. Um, and then you know, geomancy. On the other hand, you can do a Oop. reading in in minutes. Well, yeah, minutes, I suppose. Um, yeah. So you can see why, you know. I mean, just look at like the the cost of things today. Like hiring somebody to do something in half an hour compared to hiring somebody to do something that takes a whole day or more. Um, you can see why it would be considered sort of the poor man's astrology or something that, that, you know, ordinary people could afford to do. Do you think it was something that, you know, you, you mentioned that it was, um, more popular than the Ouija board or what else was the other thing you said? Tarot. tarot. So like Ouija board and tarot, I mean, she's talking about how those are in modern culture is just a totally weird, different thing, but do you think it was something that everybody did? Like, did everybody have like a a cousin who who did geomancy? <laughs> Probably. Like, it was definitely popular. I'd say mm -hmm. that everyone caught geomantic references. Like, we find references to geomantic figures in Chaucer and Shakespeare. What? Yeah, we really? find we find references that it was taught in universities. You know, everyone from kings to priests to doctors knew about and practiced geomancy so if you just said oh so i recall this is like this is like the you know that figure fortuna minor like that's this is this situation People are like oh yeah it is i can see that <laughs> it's like you know you know when ish hits the fan like you say well this is some tower stuff isn't it yeah and people are like yeah this is the tower in your life isn't it Oh, it's, I like, it's, it's like hanging out with witches. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Jimmy was definitely popular back in the day. And I don't want to say that everyone knew about it, mm -hmm. but most everyone did. Huh. That's interesting. I never... Uh, can you... Uh, do, do you have, like, offhand an a example of a reference in Shakespeare? Not Shakespeare, but Chaucer, I do. Chaucer? Um, Chaucer... I'm sorry, not Chaucer. Um... Dante's Inferno. Oh. Um, when it might have been is one of Dante's books, but it's a reference to someone seeing their greater fortune passing over the horizon, like it refers to oh. the rising sun. Uh huh. And you know, it talks about, about diviners and astrologers seeing that figure rise over the horizon. They're talking about the rising sun in mm. terms of their own divination systems. Oh, okay, okay. Like, Lynn Thorndike does a lot of research on this topic. Uh, Lynn Thorndike's, I think, a historian of astrology and occult in Europe and has written lots about where you might find astrological references. Like, for instance, you go to the Library of Congress in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. The main hall has a giant stained glass 
you know, interpretation of the Zodiac on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Like, in the Library of Congress of all places. Why? Because the Zodiac's hugely influential in all of our sciences. You know, <laughs> mathematics, astrology, physics, ultimately had its origins in skywatching. Oh, yeah. You see, you see, like, Zodiac references in in ridiculous places all the time. Like I, exactly. and I think a lot of people nowadays don't always recognize it or see it or even know how amazing it is that it was so pervasive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of some good examples. I know that there's, there's astrological references and Masonic ritual. Um, some of it kind of obvious, some of it not so obvious, some of it sort of uh, like sideways references because of the correspondences between like the 12 tribes of Israel and the Zodiac and stuff. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, it gets everywhere. It's like um, sand at the beach. Yep. Uh, where even though we've left most astrology in <laughs> the dust of time, it's still just hanging out in the cracks. <laughs> It will. We'll never get rid of it. Thank yeah. God. I'm glad. I'm glad that we won't. You know, I I feel like uh, it adds it adds a lot of flavor to life when it's around. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially when done right. When mm-hmm. done poorly, it just gives us laughs. Yeah. Like all those yeah. Facebook memes. Oh man, or uh, your daily horoscope in the newspaper. I love. I love actually, seeing those. Come to, come to think of it, I did actually see a a good astrology Facebook meme on Facebook. Uh huh. Facebook meme on Facebook. Um the different zodiac signs as trash cans oh uh, i would like to see that i, I love trash cans <laughs> if i can find it again i'll definitely share it with you all right um you know leo is of course like one single golden trash bag amongst a whole bunch of other trash bags um <laughs> you know capricorn is like very industrial you know professional office waste spins virgo is glass recycling here plastic recycling here actual trash here Scorpio is like a curved, sexy red trash can. <laughs> was one of them a trash bag that would fit inside a trash compactor? <laughs> the only thing I can think of was Aquarius, which was a bunch of loose trash around a gutter, like a ground, <laughs> a, a drain in the gutter. Uh, sorry, Aquarians. Which is funny, you know, we live in the, the age of Aquarius. I'm, I'm sure there's no connection. <laughs> of course not. So how's how's the flavor of your wine now that it's warmed up a little bit? Oh, it's still pretty cold. I mean, there's still plenty of it, and it's still sweet. Yeah, still tart. I love it. Can you taste any like grape type flavors or wine type flavors in it? Like, do you feel oh, like? Come on, it's not it have... Boone's Farm. Give me some credit. <laughs> you you still, it's got, still you still definitely okay. All right. What sort uh, of what sort of grape do you think they used in it? Do you have any idea? Does it say on the back? Is it like Zinfandel or? I mean, my guess um, would be Zinfandel because that that's easy it to is make. It's a smooth and sweet red wine blend with luscious aromas and flavors of black cherry and plum. Hmm. Uh, Not sure about the plum. Well, I'd or black say cherry. Both of those are either Shiraz. I know that Barefoot does Shiraz also. So it could be. I would say that that sounds Shirazi or uh, or Zinfandeli. I mean, it's sweet. It's all I care about. <laughs> You're a man of discerning like, taste, Sam Block. <laughs> when it comes to gin, absolutely. When it comes to gin, yes. Oh. Wine, eh? Well, I feel like it would be really weird to do a wine or a gin themed podcast in the middle of the day. Why not? When the sun is still up. <laughs> Any time is a per gin, especially, especially the middle of the day and the middle of the week. 
Well, also <laughs> because gin is you know made from ginger berries, which oh, yeah. is an herb associated with you know Mercury and Jupiter. I uh, I actually, I yeah I knew that. One of the things I find really weird about it is that juniper and Jupiter are kind of like almost the same word. I know. So it I almost kind of am like, was mouthful. that just a was that just a, a lazy man's cheat? Like, oh, they're almost the same word. They're probably associated. <laughs> but probably not. Only in English. Yeah, I mean, Ju- yeah, Jupiter versus Genebra. Genebra. I don't know. I'm not sure. Wasn't that Dutch? Genebra is... It's kind of like the original gin prototype. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I haven't had a chance for it yet, but I I have it. had it. If you ever go to Ooh. Amsterdam, there is a really, really old distillery that's probably about 400 years old that's just south of the Dom, which is the... Mm. You know, Amsterdam means the square on the on the Amster, whatever that like, it's the name of the, the central square in the city, just South of it. You walk through the lobby of a hotel that just has like a sidewalk going through it. And there's Ooh. this little, um, alleyway with this like 400 year old building in it called Vinant Fucking. And oh, of course. it is, they have, uh, they have a Genefer that is, it'll, it'll blow your mind. It's so good. It is so good. And they serve it in these little tiny tulip glasses. Nobody's they're, they're probably like four inches oh, yeah, three they're, or four inches tall. Very narrow little uh-huh, flare and, base. Yeah, yeah. And they put it right on the counter and they fill it up until it's like just overflowing. Like the gin is just like you know, bubbling oh, wow. over the top. And your first sip has to be like bending over and sipping right off of the counter. It's really good. You you gotta do it. You know, save, save up your computer programming money and go to Amsterdam. <laughs> tell that I, is one place I want to go to. Tell them I sent you. <laughs> we'll do absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I I, uh, I really like Genefer. Uh, it's it's good stuff, and you, you're it's uh, it's worth exploring. The only stuff you can get over here in the United States that I've been able to find is from Bulls, which is a they're Ooh. like they're like crap liquor. Oh yeah, I mean, it works. It's it, real stuff, but it works. Yeah, but it's 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 nasty. It's cheap, um, and but their Genefer, it's a it's an out of Genefer, and I think it's uh, it costs like eighty bucks a friggin' bottle. It's probably not even all that good. <laughs> and yet, I would still try it. Yeah, I would too if I could get some for free. But I'm not going to pay that much money for Bulls um, uh, Genefer. That sounds like a horrible, horrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I've made worse choices in life. Who knows? Yeah. Well, you, you, you report back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. We'll do, sir. We'll do. So, how's the how's the editing process coming on your Geomancy book? Like, do you feel like it's? Oh. Uh, it, will it be out sometime in the next ten years? Ten years, yes. Okay. God and God's willing. Swear to God. Um. Although at this point, like again, it's been since twenty since twenty thirteen. People have been mm-hmm. hounding me to write a book, and when they find out that I am writing a book, they hound me about when it's going to be done. And I kind of want to take the George R. R. Martin approach, where every time someone asks me, I want to like delete an entire chapter. Oof! Why don't you just <laughs> why don't you just take some of the articles that you've already written and smoosh them together into a book? I actually that's how I started. Um, okay, that's that's a good start. That's, and, like, a really that's good one of the why editing is going so slowly because mm-hmm. you know my blog writing voice is not my book writing voice. Like I have two completely different writing methods. Uh, because you know, 
as a software engineer, I'm also a technical writer. You know, yeah. I've written theses, I've written, you know, actual scientific articles and software designs. And that's the approach take for my book or for any of my eBooks, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's writing about St. Cyprian or writing about Geomancy or writing about Archangels, you know, it's that's still a technical writing format yeah. voice I have, which is not what I use for my blog. So yeah. that's one of the reasons why editing is going by so slowly because I had to rewrite such significant portions and reorganize it, reformat it. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you might be familiar with this. I'm writing the entire book in LaTeX, which is... Yes, I saw that. I saw that on Instagram. <laughs> yep. And for those in, you know, in the audience who are not familiar, imagine writing an entire book in really powerful HTML. It's basically like a programming language for layout. It is. It's more, it is. I would say, yeah, it's it's way more weird than than HTML. It's typesetting for engineers, mm -hmm. and it, it it has a learning curve. That's for damn sure. But it will make the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. You may not be able to understand it, but it'll be the most beautiful book you'll ever read. Have you have you examined the memoir class yet in for LaTeX? It's really I good. Not. I don't want to tell you about it now because since you're already into your project, I don't want you to have to like go back and redo everything. But memoir, at least 10 years ago, memoir was like the, the cream of the crop for, for LaTeX stuff. Hmm. I'll definitely look it up. I okay. have it pulled up now on my computer. I think there's probably better stuff now but because I, I, I know that, that development for LaTeX layouts and LaTeX packages keeps going. But yeah. uh, but when I like, write stuff... I use org Go mode on. in Emacs. Oh god. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, like this book's been in the works for so long that some of the packages I started using to be in the project are now obsolete in Logic. Mm. So <laughs> oops. Yeah. That's what I get. Well, you know, I'm sure it'll happen eventually. Oh it will. Like my goal is to have it edited and ready for a publisher i don't know by the end of this year um i haven't yet figured out the whole publication thing i might try submitting to publication i might just self-publish it to like i don't know maybe lulu maybe we'll see if like, you um, decide to self-publish it make sure that you get a copy editor and make sure that you talk to somebody about how book layouts are supposed to look oh i know do you no, know about the you, that, like, you know about using the golden ratio in your book layout Oh my god! Just put like the golden spell on everything, and be fine. <laughs> no, but it gives you like nice, nice gutters and nice margins, right? So that you have a nice layout and and space for people to write marginalia. It um, it makes the page look pretty. Uh, it helps you, you know. So there's also stuff like uh, justification of the oh, right. of the text yeah. block. There's the whole widows and orphans prevention. Oh, yeah. Um, there's there's a no, lot I'm of stuff aware. to worry about. Yeah. Okay. All I right. keep an eye on that for my own book, but no, when I do have it finished, I'm going to have like some like another reader to like look it over. Okay. You know, yeah. I, I do uh, I do book reviews for a for a Masonic um, journal, hmm. and Freemasonry in the English language, like Freemasonry, is the second most published about topic after the Bible. It's super ridiculous. There's really? So much. Yeah, try looking up Freemasonry on Amazon or something and see how many oh, friggin' books. Um, but uh, but a lot of them are self-published. And um, right. a lot of authors who self-publish books, they, they don't know what they're doing or they don't um, they don't get an editor. They don't understand how the layout yeah. works. And it is so painful 
It is so painful to read some of these things. Oh, I'm especially, sure. Especially when they have good content. Because they've got good content and the rest of it sucks. And you're just sort of like, ugh. Do I recommend yeah. this to people? They aren't even going to want to look at it. Yep, I completely understand. Yeah. Hopefully LaTeX takes out the bulk of that for me. But of course, you always need human touch. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Day but, by day. Bye bye bye. <laughs> all right. So we've talked about you know, uh I forgot all about your ebooks. I I, I know that I, I saw them on your website, but you've got so many blog posts that I was kinda I didn't <laughs> uh I didn't spend a whole lot of time looking at the ebooks to see what you had in there, but like what uh what are your ebooks about? Like you said you mentioned Saint Cyprian. I assume you've probably got some geomancy stuff in there and so so what are you uh what are some of the ones that you're most proud of? So I have a translation of a 15th century manuscript on geomancy. Uh-huh. Like I can brief like knowledge lecture kind of stuff. It's not that mm-hmm. long, but it is a translation from the you know, 15th century Western Latin uh, manuscript, the Lectura Geomantiae. Um, I my most recent ebook is the Secreti Geomantici, which is basically my primer on geomantic magic. Mm-hmm. You know. It's some of the stuff I was going to have in my geomancy textbook, but is better off in its own separate text. So it's talked about, you know, geomantic angels, geomantic candle working, mm-hmm. uh, geomantic gestures and chants and prayers you can make and so forth. Um, there's two of my books are basically collections of prayers, mm-hmm. one for St. Cyprian and one for the seven Eastern Christian archangels. Um, there's my translation of the book of St. Cyprian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also a book on Greek letter divination, uh, ah, essentially Greek runes. Cool. Did you make that up? No. Um, I got the inspiration from John Opsospouse. Op- Opsospouse. I don't, I can't pronounce his name for the life of me. Um, he recently put out his own book called the Oracles of Apollo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically saw the system he had back on his website and I experimented with it. I did some my own research. I augmented it. I toyed around with it. And eventually it became the foundation for my thesis work, actually. Ah. Um, using the Greek alphabet instead of the Hebrew alphabet for occult purposes. Um, because each Greek letter has an oracle associated with it. It has a magical word, an angel of its own, connections with the elements and the plants and the zodiac signs. Wow. And it forms a complete system of occult cosmology unto itself. Hmm. And that's kind of the foundation for my Mathesis stuff. So it was like after I put out my Grammatomancy book that the Mathesis stuff really took off. Hmm. That sounds interesting. I'm going to look that I'll I'll uh, I'll look for that one. Uh that's cool. Uh so the Saint Cyprian. That seems like a really really modern and drastic departure from most of the other stuff you've been talking about. Is it is it Well, I mean, aren't most of the Saint Cyprian grimoires like uh like uh 18th and 19th century? Oh no. Really? Um I mean most of them available are, but a lot of it has origins in much earlier folk magic traditions. Okay. Um, basically, I got on the St. Cyprian bandwagon back in like 2014, mm-hmm. 2015, 2014, 2013, back then. Um, 
and I never really fell off. You know, St. Sabrina is the patron saint of magicians, sorcerers, and necromancers, mm -hmm. and is a great guy, um, along with his, you know, compatriots, St. Eustina, St. Theokistus. Um, St. Sabrina has definite, you know, folk traditions in Greece, in Spain, in Mexico, across the Americas. And, you know, I'm not opposed to saint work at all uh -huh. um, by any means. And St. Cyprian is definitely a strong ally to have. He's not the easiest saint to work with, but he is extraordinarily worthwhile to work with. Huh. All right. That's, I I think I've got a, uh, a St. Cyprian book from uh, Nephilim Press. It's big and brown and strangely bound. Uh, you, probably, oh. you can probably see it over. Oh, it's it's on that shelf. On that shelf. <laughs> unfortunately, the quality is on the. It's too grainy. I can't see. Unfortunately. Well, you know, my my webcam is very cheap. <laughs> it's built into my laptop. Uh, but I, I I kind of flipped through a little bit, but it didn't really it didn't really inspire me to work with it very much. Sometimes there's just too much stuff to work with. Yes, Sometimes there's, there's so much material out there. Um, but, uh, but hearing about all of the stuff that you've been doing and sort of reading your, reading your blog has been actually fairly inspiring. I'm kind of looking forward to uh, digging into the geomantic stuff again. So, so I'm, glad. Yeah. I'm glad I can help out. I, honestly, I completely understand about having too much because honestly, I do have too much. Mm -hmm. Like between my full-time job as a software engineer for the government, between commuting back and forth, which mm -hmm. takes up about three hours by day, dealing with religious commitments and my community and trying to keep my house in normal working order, you know, there really just are not hours, enough hours the day or enough days in the week. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just really have to throttle back and prioritize, you know, what can I actually manage even as a daily routine? Can I even sacrifice my daily routine and fall back on kind of just coasting until I need to? You know, what can I build up when I need to do a ritual? Oh, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that most, you know, I've been I've been doing um, ceremonial magic for about 20 years. And, and for large portions of that time, you know, not right at the beginning where it was all like, you know, do the do the banishing ritual, the pentagram every day and blah, 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 blah. But now at times, a lot of the times my daily ritual is like a... Uh, a prayer and some meditation. And that's perfect. It, it, it works. works. It, it keeps me focused and stuff. And then every once in a while, I'll get a hankering to do something else. But yeah. All right. We've got, we've been recording for a while now. And so I'm sort of wondering, uh, do you have any questions for me? Um, should I? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just wanted to give you the opportunity. <laughs> well, you did just mention daily ritual. Mm -hmm. um, at your height of yeah. busy magical practice. Oh, geez. What was your full daily practice? You know, what did you do in the morning? What did you do in the evening? What order did you do it in? There... And why did you lessen over time? Um, there was a period of time where I was going through like a golden dawn self-initiation thing. Uh, this was probably, oh, 2004 to 2006, I would guess. Uh, maybe, I mean, so it I was started still in high school. It started before then. I was not in high school. I was way out of high school by then, but, um, but, uh, 
there's a there's this great website and I can't remember what it's called. I've got some printouts um, shoved in a binder somewhere that that have all of it. Um, but it involved a lot of stuff. There was like an opening that involved. Um, uh, I mean, I kind of you know in my mind it just seems sort of like the standard like Donald Michael Craig style uh, ritual package where you've got like the you know you've got like a yogic breathing sort of exercise like a pranayama thing to open up you then move into the lesser banishing ritual the pentagram you then do the banishing ritual the hexagram then you do uh some sort of invoking ritual depending on what you're working with whether it's elemental or planetary oh wait there's also a middle pillar ritual in there somewhere i don't remember exactly where that went um and then at the height of it all you would have something in the middle and then you would close with another banishing ritual, the hexagram and another banishing ritual, the pentagram. And then uh, it would be time for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really, it, it, I remember it taking, um, I think I got it down to something like an hour, a little over an hour of ritual in the morning. It was a lot, you know, you, it was like, especially when you're first starting off, but like you end up having all this stuff in your memory. Um, and then as time went on and I became more exposed to more stuff, uh, I changed a lot of that. I, I got, I guess at some point I got really disillusioned with Hermetic Kabbalah, like we talked about right at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and so I decided that I was going to study Hebrew Kabbalah. So I tried. And there are a number of problems with studying Hebrew Kabbalah when you're not Jewish. Uh, yes. First of all, you're not Jewish. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. Second of all, most of the texts aren't available in English. A lot of the really important stuff is just not available in English. Um, third of all, even when you do find stuff that's available in English, none of it is going to make sense unless you start learning Hebrew. You mm -hmm. have to know Hebrew to get through some of the stuff. Um, and and being and once you lose that sort of like fascination with Hermetic Kabbalah. That whole system of magic just becomes so vacant. You just are sort of like, ah, I don't even want to do the Kabbalah stuff here. Like, what am I changing all of these god names for? Like, I don't even. So I, I kind of went through a little bit of a, a lost period where I was tired of that stuff. Um, and I think that's kind of why I slowed down a lot was just sort of running into that hermetic Kabbalah wall and kind of mm. losing interest. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a long time ago though, but yeah, at the height, at the height, it was a lot of just rituals that had been sort of, you know, cribbed from the golden dawn and cribbed from some of those golden dawn sources. And, and, uh, it was, it was long, it was long. <laughs> How about yours? Oh God. Let's see. Wake up take a shower, meditation, prayer, prayer to the planet of the day, offerings if needed, energy work, which we can, you know, banishing, elemental attunement, planetary attunement, general invocation of powers to strengthen and fortify my sphere, if I want to do a further invocation of the day or of the hour of the day to do any other work, I would at that point or make more offerings beyond just the usual. 
the night, you know, recounting meditation, accounting of the day, prayer as I drift off to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, it took a while. Yeah, it takes a long time. I, I, I think uh, I always felt better when I didn't even time it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I had a lot of, uh, you know, there was a period of time where I had a really nice um, dedicated ritual space and it was it was kind of shut off from everything else. And that, that sort of helped that a lot too. But I mean, nowadays, like my altar is directly behind me. You can see there's a painting of Hermes Trismegistus on the wall over my mm-hmm. shoulder. Um, that With is, a Masonic emblem above it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that is right above my altar here. Oh, you can't really see it. It's it's too far away. Um, but yeah, like, so, uh, you know, downsizing my life uh, also kind of shrank my magical practice because now stuff has to happen in a smaller space. And like that's actually something I've been debating lately. Like, for instance, my bromancer, um, you know, Palos Renatus, he mm-hmm. hasn't been active on blogging lately, but he was, he's my best friend. You uh-huh. know, both, you know, just normal, you know, drinking and magic, he's my best friend. And we've kind of been mulling over what happened? You know, back in 2011, 2013, we were both really busy. Like, it seemed like everyone who was anyone was doing all these amazing projects. You know, Rufus mm-hmm. Opus, Jason Miller, you know, everyone. And then it all kind of just went quiet on the blogosphere. Like, I know people didn't stop doing magic, but they all went quiet. And then, you know, it just seemed like everything kept started falling apart. And now we're kind of just, you know, for me, I moved slightly farther away, so I have a longer commute. I bought a house, which involves actual house maintenance instead of calling mm-hmm. a landlord. You know, I don't have as much time. And we're kind of debating, are we moving into the dad magic phase? Dad magic. <laughs> I you mean, know, it could be. I think part of it has to do, you know, just with, like, the phases of your life, you know? So you're describing <laughs> things that are, that in our culture are like associated with being a grown up. You own a house now. You do house maintenance. You have a full time job with a long commute. Like these are these are Oof. normal American things to do. So there, but we don't have space in America. Like the normal religious space for the individual is is one morning a week. Yeah, you know you That's unfortunate. you go to a synagogue or you go to a church or you go to a mosque and and that's your religious space. There's not space for ritual every day. Like there's not even really space for people to be ceremonial magicians or to mm-hmm. even be like a village witch doctor or whatever the heck you want to do. Like that's not made. Um, yeah, I think about that a lot too. Uh, and frankly, you know, I, I came to a spot in my life where I was like, all of this normal shit is shit and I'm just going to burn it all to the ground and, and run away, <laughs> which would be nice. You know, it's uh it requires it's not it's not fun it's not fun but mm-hmm. i hear that um and i wouldn't really recommend that for anybody unless you uh unless you're tired of all the material niceties of life but <laughs> yeah um so i don't we know all, I... we all make the mistake at least once we all make the mistake at least once of asking for too much change yeah like oh shit no literally yes. please <laughs> Take away everything I don't need. Like, oh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. You ask, you will receive. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, and that's a tricky thing to, to uh, deal with. So, um, but like the thing you're talking about where you, you, I mean, you mentioned a group of, of, of magicians who are all sort of start part of the, from, from my point of view, sort of a newer school. 
like the blogosphere, the hermetic blogosphere tradition. Let's call it the hermetic blogosphere tradition, because from where <laughs> I came from, there wasn't really a hermetic blogosphere. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there was a different group of authors that I was paying attention to um, and a different group of like magicians and people who who, you know, they you know, I, I, I don't know how if they I don't know how work how the work sort of changes as you go through your life. I would assume that like a lot of stuff like daily practice, you know, you have to learn all of this crap. There's so many skills that you have to learn that we just aren't taught as kids anymore or that we just don't really have. Mm -hmm. Like you have to learn how to do visualization and, you know, there's contemplation and like all of these things. So like that daily practice at first, is very, very important. Um, And I don't know if it continues to be important. Like I honestly don't run into problems. Like I never use the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram anymore. And I never run into problems because of it. At least not that I can tell. I don't feel like I'm like this place is haunted. (laughs) But you can also interpret that one of two ways. You know, one interpretation is that you never needed it. Mm-hmm. That perhaps importance was overblown. Not uh-huh. an implication that you could extend. Or it could be that you've done it already for so long, so continuously, that you don't need to do it anymore. Because for you, the mere thought of it mm-hmm. is doing it for you. You know, muscle memory becomes the muscle. That's, I think, that might be the case. That might be the case. I, you know, it's it's hard to say. Like when I, you know, um, another practice that I picked up was uh, some of the meditations out of the Sefer Yetzirah, like the, like Arya Kaplan's commentary on it in particular, taught me some, taught, you know, I learned some Kabbalistic techniques out of there that I use. Like I still am doing Kabbalah. <laughs> I know that, I know that I will never be like a full-blown Kabbalist. Like all of my Kabbalah is always going to be sort of like I mean, it's useful for it's super the, useful for yeah stuff it's useful yeah uh, and i know that, it, that it's always going to be around but like some of the stuff out of the sefer yetzra that i practiced for like years and years and years it comes very easily to me so i use it and i incorporate it in places where it's like you know cast a circle or you know do a banishing or do this sort of thing i'm like oh i've got i've got that covered so exactly. and you know i think that's just stuff you you figure it out over time you figure out if it's going to work or not mm-hmm yeah, we all end up coming with our own style of magic, our own idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. individual, personal style. Yes, we base it in this school or that tradition or this lineage or that methodology. But at the end of the day, it's still what have we found that works. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Sam, you know what? It's been a, a pleasure talking to you and having you on the on the podcast. I'm really glad that you... Uh... That you agreed to come on. I'm super glad that I like stumbled across your your blog multiple times over the past couple of years, and I was like, "This guy's fascinating." So, um, <laughs> all right. So, how can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on the internet. Uh, my blog is digitalambler.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me on Facebook under Digital Ambler. Uh, you can find me on Twitter under Polyphonies. Mm-hmm. If you ever see the name Polyphonies on the internet, that's going to be me. I am the only one in the history of forever who apparently has that name. <laughs> um so okay on any platform generally if you look for polyphonies and you find it it's going to be me um but my blog is digitalambler.com facebook as well twitter as well again thank you for having me on here it's been a great time talking to you i'm glad to finally met you to have this one conversation to be insulted about my poor choice in wine <laughs> we barely <laughs> even talked about you being a furry <laughs> Hey, they know how to party. They I'm, absolutely I'm know how sure to party. They do. Definitely know how to fight. Thank God. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, Sam. 
guys, that was Sam Block, Notorious Furry Wizard. Thank you so much for listening. I know this was a long episode, but I feel like it was full of good stuff and I couldn't find anything to cut out. Alright, you heard where you could find Sam online. You can find us online at our website, myalchemicalbromance.com. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher or your favorite podcast distribution system. If you're looking for us on something and you can't find us, let me know and I'll try to fix that. Please give us a rating. Let others know that you enjoy the show. Um, it's, uh, it's good for my ego. It's good for the show. And it helps us get uh, awesome guests on. Also remember to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash arnomancy. Uh, I hope that you enjoy the show, that you came away with some new knowledge. And we will see you next time. No, wait. We will make noise at you next time. You will hear us next time. Have a good night.